0: Thank you for listening to this free audiobook created by Project Gutenberg and Microsoft AI. To learn more about the project or give feedback on the quality of a recording, please visit aka.ms/audiobook. Punch or the London Shiver, Vol. 146, June 24, 1914. Shriveria, the Cambridge University Boat Club has decided to spend £8,000 in improving the Cam. There is talk of making it into a river, says a writer in a contemporary. Don't live in a houseboat during a flood. And yet Noah always declared that he owed his life to having done so. Noah, the gentleman who formed M. Ribot's cabinet are objecting to being described as The one-day ministry. They were, they assert, an office for some hours more than that. M. Ribot's The attack on M. Ribot's ministry in the matter of the three years' service was led in the chamber by three quite undistinguished socialists, and the contest was described succinctly by an unsympathetic onlooker as, trois V, vi trois Ribot's. By the way, M. Viviani's finance minister is, we see, M. Nulens. Is he, we wonder, any relation of M. Nulens-Villens? Viviani's. M. Nulens. The Kaiser has commanded that the colonial war memorial to be erected in Berlin shall take the form of an elephant. Presumably it is to be of Perian marble in order to signify that some of the German colonies are a bit like a white elephant. Kaiser. A French squadron of 18 vessels has lately been visiting Portland. It was perhaps a little unfortunate that Admiral Callahan's ship should have been the Iron Duke but no doubt our tactful officers explained to their visitors that the vessel had been so named after a wealthy iron master who had been ennobled. Callahan's. The report that an airship expedition is being prepared against the Mad Mullah is said to have caused keen delight to the old gentleman, as he has never seen an aeronautical display of any kind. Mad Mullah, It is now suggested that when Mr. Hobhouse took possession of HMS Monarch, he was laboring under the delusion that he was Postmaster Admiral as well as Postmaster General. Hobhouse. The publication of The Best of Lamb by Messrs. Methuen reminds one that a literary butcher once complained that Lamb had not been issued in the Canterbury Poets. Methuen. Lamb. Although Mr. T. P. O'Connor is severing his connection with T. P.S. Weekly, the name of the paper will not be changed. This sort of thing is well calculated to confuse and unsettle the public. T. P. or not T. P. That'll be the question. T. P. O'Connor. It is denied that the title of our newest magazine, Blast, was suggested by Mr. Bernard Shaw. Bernard Shaw. Old spot pigs, we are informed, are now being bred successfully once more. It surprises us to hear this announced as a triumph. One would have thought that in these days of beauty culture a clear complexion would have been the desideratum. If, says a contemporary, the middle-class girl were regularly provided with a dowry, the matrimonial enthusiasm of young men would probably be stimulated. We cannot imagine how people think of these clever things. Members of the Women's Social and Political Union are, says the Daily Mail, boycotting West End shopkeepers and stores not advertising in the militant organs. However, If the rest of the public will agree to boycott such firms as do advertise in these organs the matter should come all right. A warning has been issued to picnic parties as to the danger for matters, which are exceptionally numerous this year. They are apt to bite if suddenly sat upon, and prudent persons are taking the precaution of sitting on their plates. I shall never, writes a journalist in the Express, forget the shudder with which I saw a very well-known dramatist at a garden party eating strawberries with his gloves on. We ourselves sometimes have these sudden sensations, but unlike the writer, are very prone to let them slip out of our memory. A dress designer, we read, went mad one day last week in Paris and fired a number of revolver shots at the police. To judge by many of the creations one sees there must be quite an epidemic of mental deficiency just now among designers of modes. Bags, we read in a lady's paper, are going out of fashion. Men will, however, continue to wear them. From a list of awards at the horse show. Riding Jonies, Shetland Jones. Pairs of pones. Morning post. You see the animal they mean. Cutter wanted for ladies and gentlemen's trade. City house. State experience. Salary. An ordinary enough advertisement. But the Irish Times imparts a certain melancholy humor to it by inserting it in the section headed. Yachts, boats, etc. Grand knights. Old benchers of the various ancient inns. At whose so generous tables I have battened, Where potions of the best and fruitiest bins, And fare on which Lucullus might have fattened, Lucullus, tend to reduce thee all, Proper to laymen shadowed by the law, How good I find it, full of meat to sit, The Wallo Porto's juice of eighty-seven, Served on the polished board with silver lit, Heartens me to postpone the joys of heaven, And here, Ramotis Curries, the legal jest, the absentilla juris. But most I compliment, with thanks profuse, the touch that gives your feasts their crowning savour, whose absence must have marred the duckling moose, ruined the nejo kirsh and soured the flavour of Madame Melba's peaches. Melba's. I mean the pledge upon my card. No speeches. There's only one I like, and that's the king. King. I give the text in full. No superfluities. Why should I have to hear some daughter sing? Praise of the government, whichever crew it is. While someone else endorses. The obvious merits of our fighting forces? If I have dined too well, tomorrow's cure. Shall be the fine for my excessive feasting. But, at the night's tail end, I can't endure. A punishment that bores me like a bee sting. Poisoning all the mirth. That should companion my distended girth. For this relief from those who spoil the vine. How oft have I refused, O learned benchers, For fear of speeches, other men's and mine. The chance of feeding off the choicest trenchers. For this relief I rank you. High up among my benefactors. Thank you. O.S. How the championship was won. The last match of the season was between Kent and Somerset. Kent and Surrey were at the top of the championship table, with the following percentages. Surrey had completed its program. Thus all depended on the result of this Kent-Somerset match. To become champions Kent had either to win outright, or to keep their percentage intact by the circumstance of both sides not completing an innings. Play was impossible on the first day owing to rain. On the second day Somerset scored 157. Rain fell again and Kent were unable to commence their innings till the afternoon of the third day. Obviously, they had to strain every nerve to accomplish two things. One, to avoid getting out and two, to avoid scoring more than 157. At all hazards they must neither win nor lose on the first innings. They could not win the match. There was no time. And either a win or a loss on the first innings would lower their percentage sufficiently to enable Surrey to go to the top. For in the matter of averages, it is better under certain conditions not to have fought at all than to secure only a portion of the honours. It was an extraordinary afternoon's cricket. The Kent batsmen were very careful. But two minutes before time, there were 156 runs on the board, and the last two batsmen were at the wicket. If a wicket fell or a couple of runs were scored, Kent would lose the championship. Strong men shivered like leaves as ball after ball was steadily blocked by the batsmen. Red-faced farmers wore their pencils to stumps in explaining the appalling alternatives. Somerset, in the most sporting spirit, were trying their hardest. A couple of deliberately bold wides would, of course, have given Surrey the championship, but Somerset were playing for the honor and glory of defeating Kent on the first innings. The last two Kent men displayed wonderful nerve. The straight ones were carefully stopped, and every ball off the wicket was left alone. Needless to say the softest long hop to leg would not have tempted them to hit. When the bowler prepared to deliver the last ball of the day the very trees round the ground seemed to stop whispering. It was a good length ball, very fast, and pitched slightly to the off. The batsman raised his bat, expecting it to fly past the wicket. To his horror it nipped in. Down came the bat in frantic haste. Heaven be praised! Just in time! The bat just snicked the ball off. It missed the wicket by an eighth of an inch and shot away to leg. Then occurred one of those incidents that men boast of having witnessed, one of those strange happenings in sport that are recounted to generation after generation. The ball had shot away to leg where there was no Fields man. One of the slips immediately made after it. The batsmen naturally did not run as they did not wish to score. But suddenly it occurred to the striker that it might reach the boundary that the slip field might not be fast enough to catch it up, and that, therefore, Kent would win on the first innings and in so doing lose the championship. The idea flashed across his mind almost immediately after he had hit the ball, and with a promptness of action that was really beyond all admiration he dropped his bat and ran like a madman man in pursuit of the ball. He easily outstripped the Somerset slip, who was rather a stout man, and fled like a hare after the little red devil that was scorching fast in search of the fatal four. Men groaned in the agony of their excitement, and women shrieked hysterically. On flew the gallant Kent batsman. Nearer and nearer he got to the ball. He overtook it. He stopped it. Three inches from the boundary he fell on it and hugged it to his chest. The match was a draw, a glorious draw. Neither side had won or lost a point. It did not count in the championship table. Kent were champions. In the mad excitement of the moment no one thought of appealing on the question of handling the ball or interfering with the field. Moreover both the umpires had swooned and were being removed on shutters. The result stood. The hero of the game was carried into the pavilion by two music hall agents and a reporter. Editorial amenities. I have no fault to find with Towser except that it is very much like scores of other dog stories. That is probably why you have failed to place it. Have you tried the Manchester Guardian? T. Weekly. What comes after home rule, Mormons in Germany? Vancouver Daily Province. Fortunately, we shan't mind that. Musical Notes The remarkable and altogether epic-making article in the Times of the 16th INST on the stimulating effect of the bath on unmusical people has already borne notable fruit. Meetings of the governing bodies of all the principal musical colleges and academies were held on the following day, at which it was unanimously determined, as one of the speakers put it, to effect a closer synthesis of harmony and ablution. Sir Hubert Perry, himself celebrated in his youth for his prowess in natation, has offered to present the Royal College of Music with a magnificent swimming bath. Mr. Landon Ronald has drafted a scheme for the erection of a floating bath in the Thames for the convenience of the Guildhall School, and Sir Alexander Mackenzie has offered the students of the RAM an annual prize for the best vocal composition in praise of Sapinaceous Absturgents. Hubert Perry. Landon Ronald. Alexander Mackenzie. Outside our musical academies, the impetus given to musicians and composers has been equally remarkable. Professor Bonville de Quantock whose oriental proclivities are well known, has at once embarked on a gigantic choral symphony, to words of his own composition, in which the whole process and procedure of the Turkish bath is treated historically, dramatically and realistically in seventeen movements. The title has not yet been definitely fixed, but it will probably be known as the Symphony Bathatique, to differentiate it from Tchaikovsky's hackneyed work. Tchaikovsky's Strauss is reported by Mr. Kalisch to be engaged on a series of spritzbad leader of extraordinary beauty and complexity, in which a wonderful effect is produced by the employment in the orchestral accompaniment of a new instrument called the luffophone, which produces a curious hissing noise like that emitted by a groom when using the craycomb. Another instrument to which prominence is assigned in the score is called the sapanola and bears a resemblance to the spallakide subfamily of mandrills which have the mandibular angles in close proximity to the sockets of the lower cephalopods. The motto of the work is Das Uigsefisch Strauss Kalisch We may further note, as one of the most valuable by-products of the Times article, the announcement that an international Balneo musical congress will be shortly held in the Albert Hall, with a view to discussing the best methods of promoting harmonic hygiene. The arena, we understand is to be converted into a vast demonstration tank, in which prominent composers, conductors and singers will appear. Miss Carrie Tubb has kindly promised to preside. Amongst other items in the program we may mention an exhibition of underwater violin playing by Mr. Bamberger, and a game of symphonic water polo between two teams of Ryan Maidens, captained by her Nykish and Sir Henry Wood respectively. Carrie Tubb. Nykish. Henry Wood. Ideal holidays. Some further opinions. Colonel Roosevelt. There is no doubt whatever that the best holiday ground is Brazil. There one can have excitement day and night. When one is not escaping from a man-eating trout one is eluding a vampire bat. If the time is slow one can always seek the rapids. Next to Brazil I should suggest the offices of the New River Company. Colonel Roosevelt. Mr. Hobhouse, PMG. I know very little of holidays, having to keep my nose to S.T. Martin's Le Grindstone day and night, but I have thought that, if I did take a week or so off, I should choose to spend it on the post office yacht, roughing it. Mr. Hobhouse. Sir Edward Carson. Such time as I can spare from Ulster, and my daily journey to and from London I should like to spend in explaining to Redmond the duties of a warlord. Sir Edward Carson. Redmond. Mr. Frank Tinney, the famous American tragedian. Ordinary holidays is just so much junk. Me and Ernest don't hold with them. Our idea of a holiday is to go downtown and hear jokes. The more jokes we hear the bigger stock we have not to tell. Mr. Frank Tinney. Ernest. Mr. Winston Churchill. I have often wondered if a busy administrator might not get a very restful time by steadily refusing to fly. Mr. Winston Churchill. Mr. Asquith. This talk about the constant need for holidays seems to me to be, if I may say so, one of the great illusions of the day. The wise man surely is he who, seated in his chair of office, welcomes every new complication and perplexity that the moments bring, and in labor finds the true repose. Mr. Asquith. Mr. Masterman. I am spending my own holiday just now very agreeably in composing conundrums. This is my latest why do I differ from my trousers? The answer is, because they don't want receding. Mr. Masterman. Lord Wimborne. There is no place for a holiday like Meadowbrook. Lord Wimborne. A set of twelve Elizabethan, Apostle, spoons were recently offered for sale at Messrs. Christie's. Only one actual Apostle, St. Peter, was available, but excellent substitutes were provided in the persons of Alexander the Great, Charlemagne. Julius Caesar, King Arthur, Guy of Warwick, Queen Elizabeth, Judas Maccabeus, and others. Christes. Peter. Alexander the Great. Charlemagne. Julius Caesar. Arthur. Guy of Warwick. Queen Elizabeth. Judas Maccabeus. The fielding was particularly smart, and the batsmen could not get the ball away, the only hit worth mention for several hours being a four by Tarrant off Bullo. Newcastle Evening Chronicle. A few more efforts like this, and we shall suspect Tarrant of having read the brighter cricket articles. Tarrant. A wireless message has been received here from the liner, New York, reporting that while in a dense fog she was struck a glancing blow abaft the bow by the steamer Pretoria. The New York was stooping at the time, and the shock was only slight. Glasgow Evening News. Showing the advantage of being caught bending. When other lips. The most original feature of the opera ballet, Le Coq d'Or, given last week for the first time in England, was the arrangement by which the actors were excused from singing, and the singers from acting. Chorus and soloists, dressed uniformly, without distinction of sex, in a nondescript maroon attire, were disposed on each side of the stage in a couple of grand stands, from which they saw little or nothing of the entertainment, but enjoyed an uninterrupted view of the conductor. This left the actors free to attend to the primary business of miming, which, when it came to the distribution of applause, they clearly regarded as the most important element in the show. I look for great things from this new departure. It is rare enough for an operatic performer to be capable of both singing and acting, or to be alike beautiful to look on and to listen to. Once we have accepted the convention by which an actor's lips are allowed to move in one part of the stage while the sound comes from a totally different quarter, we may go further and arrange for the singers to be put out of sight altogether. He, and more particularly, she, might be posted behind some sort of screen, diaphanous in respect of the vocalist's view of the conductor, but opaque to the audience. When I think of some of the rather antique and amorphous prime down of German, Italian, and French opera, I know that any scheme which would render them invisible and permit their acting parts to be played by young and gracious figures would meet with my unqualified approval. It would be necessary, of course, to consult them first, a task which I would not care to undertake, and this division of labor would no doubt entail additional expense but I am convinced that the pure love of art for art's sake which is inherent in the nature of all operatic stars and syndicates would ultimately rise superior to considerations whether of pelf or a pra. O.S. From a catalog. Wells H. G. And Veronica. A modern love story. C.R. 8 V.O. cloth. Rather dull. Wells. Domestic economy. Another husband housekeeper. Supplementing the information already published in the Daily Mail, reveals the system of housekeeping by enforcing which he saves pounds and pounds and pounds a year. When Sunday's heavy meal is done, our joint's career is but begun. In primus, undismayed and bold, it reappears on Monday, cold. And lo! The same on Tuesday will appear again, and colder still. The odds and ends we keep in store, divided neatly into four. A portion number one will do. For Wednesdays, so to speak, ragu. A portion number two will be: The gist of Thursday's fricassee. A portion number three, supply. The pith of Friday's cottage pie. A portion number four will play. The leading role on Saturday. Entitled may be: "Alarous, Or better still, Anonymous. Thus is economy attained. For thus is appetite constrained. Driven. I. Seen. Stafford. Barbara, the doctors have given their verdict. My wife has only two years to live. Barbara. John, but she looks so well. What's the matter with her? Stafford. Well, it's a little difficult to explain. But without being technical, I may say that it is, er, not exactly appendicitis and yet, er, not exactly mumps. Anyhow, it's always very fatal on the stage. Barbara. Two years. John, I'm not quite clear whether I'm your relation or Diana's, or, in fact, what I'm doing in the house at all, but as an old friend of somebody's may I give you a word of advice. Stafford, looking at his watch. Certainly, but you must be quick. I have to be back at the house in five seconds. Barbara. Then, John, give Diana a good time for those two years. Ask her to recite sometimes, tell her about Welsh disestablishment. At all costs keep her amused. Stafford, amazed. My dear girl, do you realize I'm an opposition member? The government may spring a snap division on us at any moment. Taking out his engagement book, still, let me see what I can do. On July 15th, 1916. Oh no, that will be too late. November 25, 1915. How's that? We might have an afternoon at Q then if the whips don't want me. Looking at his watch. Well, I must be off. Don't let Diana know she's ill. Diana. I listened outside the door. Two years, and he won't even ask me to recite to him. He doesn't love me. Barbara. He does, he does. But he's one of those men who never show it till the last act. Diana. Well, I know somebody who doesn't mind showing it in the first act. Goes to telephone. Is that you, Captain Furness? I've just learned a new little piece. Yes, don't be long. Curtain. Curtain. Two. Furness. There, dear, now we can have a nice little supper together. You do love me, don't you? Diana. I suppose so. I love talking to you on the telephone, anyway. I can't think what we should have done in this play without the telephone. Furnace. And you will come away with me tomorrow? Diana. Yes. To the audience, oh, I've only got eighteen months. To Furnace, excuse me, Philip, this is a soliloquy. Would you mind not listening for a moment? He turns away and prepares a supper. Oh, I've only got eighteen months more, and I want to live. I want to talk on the telephone to people, and keep on changing my clothes. And recite, and, and, Philip, you don't mean to say those are Maron's glosses you've got there? Furnace. Rather. Don't you like them Diana. How dare you? You know the doctors won't let me touch them. Furnace. My dear, you never told me what the doctors said to you. What did they say? Diana. Well, anyhow, they said, no more Maron's glosses. Furnace. Really, Diana, how could I know? Diana, you ought to have guessed. You've insulted me and I'm going home. And I shan't run away with you now. Picks up her cloak and goes to the door. Er, if I should change my mind in the morning aisle. Er, telephone. Furnace, at the telephone. Yes, yes, no, Lorenzo, both ways. What? Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought it was, is it you, Diana? you will come? Good. Stafford. Good morning. Looking at his watch. I want a little talk with you if you aren't busy. Furnace. Certainly. Handing box. Won't you begin a cigarette? Stafford, taking out case. Thanks, I'll begin one of my own. Does so, now then. My sister-in-law, or cousin or, anyhow, my friend Miss, or Mrs. Dot, Cullen, Barbara Cullen. Who, er, is still with us, told me some days ago that you were about to elope with my wife. Is that so? Furnace. Yes. Stafford. Yes. I ought to have spoken to you about it before, but I have been very busy lately at the house. The government is bringing in its bill for the abolition of telephones on the stage, and it is necessary for the full strength of the opposition to be there. As I said in my speech— any such bill would, to take a case, ruin Mr. Temple Thurston's new play at the Haymarket, and recent by-elections have shown that the country was, however, I need not bother you with that. The point is that I have at last managed to get away to see you, and I want to know what it is you propose to do. Temple Thurston's. Furnace. I'm going to send in my papers and take your wife away with me. Stafford. Ah. Uh. Then perhaps before you ruin your career I'd better tell you what the doctors say about her. She is not. Furnace, impatiently. My dear chap, I know. She told me last night. But it's alright. I don't much care for them myself. Stafford. Not likely to live for more than eighteen months. Furness, My god. Stafford. That's what we all said several times when we heard it. Well? Furnace. Well, I mean, this one's thinking about. I had no, my career, only eighteen months. Stafford, breaking out at last. You beastly egotist. You think of nothing but your rotten career. You cur, you hound, you dog. You. Furnace, annoyed. Now I warn you, Stafford, I may only be about half your size, but I shall have to thrash you severely if you talk like that. Stafford. You dog. Furnace, with dignity. For the sake of your wife, go before I climb up you and strike you. Curtain. Curtain. Three. Barbara, joyfully. Diana, I've got some exciting news for you. Guess. Diana. You're going away? Barbara. No. Diana. Oh, well, after all you've only stayed with us six months. Er, you've got a new dress? Barbara. No. Diana. No, that was a silly one. Er, John's got a half-holiday? Barbara. No, well, I must tell you. Diana, you're not going to die after all. The doctor's made a mistake. Diana. Not going to die? But then I don't want to run away with Philip. Rushes to desk and seizes the telephone. I must let him know. With a shriek, help. The telephone's broken then I have nothing to live for. She takes out poison from poison drawer. I shall count three before I drink. One, two, why doesn't John come? One, two, if he isn't quick he'll be too late. One. John, looking at his watch. My darling, I have just time to forgive you. Let us be happy together again. Diana. But the telephone's broken. John, embracing her tenderly. My darling, I've sent for a man to mend it. Diana, much moved. My husband. A.M. Miss Gluck only arrived in London from New York after a tour in America earlier in the morning, and proceeded to Richmond to rest. Times. Which she must have wanted after her busy morning. The big trout. Pull up the rye Push her home. It's roses all the way. Let garlands lie on Thames's foam. A trout has died today. Room for the victor. Ho, there, room. Who calls the gods to scan? No halfling of the lilied gloom, but that leviathan, anew, with jostling words unstayed. We fight it, inch by inch, from that first moment when he made the lion scream off the winch. Twas so we struck, we held him so, lest we'd had triumph wrecked. Thus to his leap the point dropped low. And thus a rush was checked. O, oh, soft for prize. Full many a day. The old black punt has swung. Beyond his stance in twilight's gray. Or when the dawn was young. What hopes were ours, what heartbeats high. Have thrilled us when he rolled. Up from the jade green deep ain't nigh, Dull gleaming as of gold. Glide on ye stately swans with grace. Ye ne'er again shall see. His headlong dash among the dace. Beneath the willow tree. Ye little bleak, lift up your heads. Ye gudgeon, skip at score. The run between the lily beds. Shall know its lord no more. Yet, while th exalted pulses stir. Regret takes hands with pride. Regret for that most splendid spur. The wish unratified. With hammering heart that bulk icon. That spread of tail and fin. And sigh like him of Macedon. With no more worlds to win. Pull up the ripex, can't you, Jim? It's roses all the way. But ne'er another fish like him. For any other day. Room for the victor. Lock there, room. Who calls the gods to scan? No halfling of the amber gloom. But that leviathan. Commercial candor. Avoid income tax and death duties By investing in selected Canadian securities. Advertisement in. Times Financial Supplement. Motto for golfer who has fuzzled his approach. I will not stir, nor wince, nor speak a word, nor look upon the iron angrily. King John for, one, a legal document. There is, I said, a guilty look about you. You are hanging round. At this time of the morning you have usually retreated to your fastnesses. Why has not the telephone claimed you? There is something on your mind. No, said the lady of the house airily. I have a vacant mind. Where then? I said. Is your loud laugh? I have not heard you shout ha-ha, or anything remotely resembling ha-ha. Something is weighing upon you. Not at all. Yes, at all, I said decisively. You have something to confess. Confess, she said scornfully. What nonsense is this about confession? we are not early Victorians. Yes, we are. I insist upon it. I shall be busy with my writing. You will come and kneel unperceived at my feet with an imploring look upon your tear-stained face. I shall give a sudden start. And, she went on enthusiastically, I shall stretch out my hands to you, and you will raise me tenderly from the floor, and I shall then explain that appearances were against you but that Eugene is really your brother by a first marriage. And I shall then call for the smelling salts and swoon like this. She collapsed in an inanimate heap on the sofa. And you will rise to your full height. Yes, I said. I shall forgive you freely. No, she said. You will blame yourself for not having appreciated my angelic nature, for having treated me as a mere toy for having. Yes, I said for having married you at all, but I shall forgive you all the same, and I shall present you with the locket containing my grandmother's miniature. Come on, let us start at once. I forgive you from the bottom of my heart. All right, she said. I accept your forgiveness, and now that we've cleared the ground, you'll perhaps allow me. Uh Aha, I said. Then there is something after all? There always is something, she said so perhaps you'll allow me to ask you a question? A question? I said. Ask me fifty. I don't promise to answer them. I'm only human, you know, but... Surely, she said. This humility is exaggerated. Anyhow, I said, I'll do my best, so fire away. What? She said. Does one do with a legal document? Isn't this rather sudden? I said. What does one do with a legal document? My dear, one does a thousand things. One buys land or sells it, which is much better. One gets separated, or rather, two get separated. One gets a legacy, generally quite inadequate. One executes a mortgage, but you mustn't ask me who is the mortgager and who is the mortgagee, for, upon my sacred word of honor, I never can remember which is which or who does what. One leaves one's money to one's beloved wife by a legal document, or one cuts her off with a shilling and one's second-best bed, like Shakespeare, you know. Really? There's nothing you can't do with a legal document. Shakespeare. How on earth? She said admiringly. Did you get to know all these things? Oh, I don't know, I said. One learns as one goes along. Men have to know more or less about the law. Tell me she said. Do you feel paralyzed when you see a legal document? No, not now. They used to make me tremble, but I'm up to them now. I understand their jargon. And frankly, she said, I don't. But that doesn't matter, I said. You've got a man. Lucky me, she said. You've got a man to help you. That's what he's there for to help you with legal documents, and to have his work interrupted and all his ideas scattered. But bless you, he doesn't mind. He knows his place. Well, she said, it's this way. A very dear friend of mine has taken a house at the seaside, and they've sent her a document. A letting agreement, I said. I suppose so, she said, and they want her to sign it and they say something about a counterpart which somebody else is to sign. That, I said, is the usual way. What I want to know is, ought she to sign her document? Is it the sort of house she wants? The very house, she said. She's been over it. Lots of rooms, nice garden with tennis lawn, splendid view of the sea, drainage in perfect order, weekly rent a mere nothing. There's to be an inventory. Of course there is. It's always done. Does the document embody everything she requires? Yes, she said. Everything. And they've thrown in two extra days for nothing. In that case, I said, her duty is clear. She must sign it. Do you advise that? I do, I said. Most strongly. Thank you so much, she said. I'll do it at once. And before I could interfere, she had sat down at the writing table, produced a document, unfolded it, and signed it. It is, she explained, the agreement for letting Sandstone House, Sandy Bay. They made it out in my name. But this, I said, seizing the paper, is madness. It is not worth the paper on which it is written. I did nothing, she said, without your advice. I shall repudiate it, I said. As having been obtained by fraud. Righto, she said. We leave for Sandy Bay on July 28th. R.C.L. A second hand serenade. It is not mine, Aminta, to commend you. According to your merits. Miles above. My puny liar were this, I therefore send you. For reference, the classic gems of love. Would I approve your tresses? See page 7. L. Two, for what I frankly think of them. Your lips? Page eight. Your dimples, page eleven. Your teeth and ears and ankles? Ibidem. Your kisses? V. Johnson, B. to Celia Johnson. C. Annie Laurie, for the way I greet. Your neck and voice and eyes, the song has really a Trustworthy picture also of your feet. But nay, it ill behoves the ardent lover. To turn your gaze to any single spot. In every line, from cover unto cover. My passion finds an echo. Read the lot. Sir Batters. Sir Batters was a dog of birth. And bred in Aberdeen. But he favoured not his noble kin. And so his lot is mean. And Sir Batters sits by the almshouses. On the stones with grass between. Under the ancient archway. His pleasure is to wait. Between the two stone pineapples That flank the weathered gate And old, old almspersons go by All rusty, bent and black Good day, good day, sir bad ears They say and stroke his back And old, old almspersons go by Shaking and well nigh dead Good night, good night, sir bad ears They say and pat his head So courted and considered He sits out hour by hour Benignant in the sunshine And prudent in the shower Nay, stoutly can he stand a storm And stiffly breast the rain That rising when the cloud is gone He leaves a circle of dry stone Whereon to sit again A dozen little doorsteps Under the arch are seen A dozen aged persons, To keep them bright and clean Two wrinkled hands to scour each step With a square of yellow stone But print marks of Sir Batter's paws bespeckle every one, and little eats an alm's person. But though his board be bare, there never lacks a bone of the best to be Sir Batter's share. Mendicant muzzle and shrewd nose, he quests from door to door. Their grace they say his shadow grey is instant on the floor. Humblest of all the dogs there be, a pensioner of the poor, our personal column admirable crichton double blue and double first at oxford weary of Gerund grinding at a fashionable preparatory school for 500 pounds a year charming conversationalist expert auction bridge player is open to accept partnership in well-established financial house on the basis of four months holiday a year and genuine weekends friday till tuesday admirable crichton nonconformist with open mind on the subject of gambling But modest means and conscientious objection to hard work is desirous of meeting liberal-minded philanthropists who will advance him 750 pounds to operate infallible system at Monte Carlo. Nonconformist. Vigorous young man of titled family, who is sick to death of England, is prepared to undertake any duties of a sporting kind for unmarried heiress in America or elsewhere. Vigorous young man. A lady, whose income is only 4,000 pounds a year, is greatly in need of a month's yachting, but cannot afford a yacht of her own and dislikes the mixed company to be met with on the ordinary advertised cruises. Will some kind friend be so good as to lend her a yacht and endow it? A lady, university man, strong, healthy, in early forties, who has never done a day's work in his life, but has suddenly fallen on comparative poverty, Wishes to communicate with some person of means willing to save him from the pain and indignity of having to do without luxuries which have become second nature to him. University man. Two thousand pounds wanted, at once, for speculation by undergraduate. A safe two percent offered. Advertiser cannot afford more. No professional moneylenders need apply. Wanted. Christian and totaler who has not yet been to Japan would be quite grateful to any wealthy travel enthusiast who would make it possible for him to see this fascinating country. Excellent References Christian Revelation Revised Oh, would I were a preacher or a prophet of some wild pagan creed I know not where. One of whom people said, This man is off it. But still I had a following sparse and rare. That so, if cynics urged, How hard to prove is! The faith he cling to fondly and so fast. By favor of the men who work the movies. I might expound the future and the past. Hiring a lot of lads with mobile faces. And all the world to tap for filmed scenes. Would I not set backsliders in their places. And give my errant congregation beans. Uprising in the darkened tabernacle. A canvas sheet across the stage unfurled. Tonight, dear brethren, we propose to tackle, I should commence, the making of the world. Doubts have arisen lately if the cosmos, sprang as I stated, an egregious dawn, has published pamphlets asking if it was moss, or something else, that formed the primalon. Well, to confute at once this creeping scandal, you shall behold the facts before your eyes. If Mr. Potts will kindly turn that handle— Thank you, and note, the camera never lies. Yes, I would teach them, and if any scoffers. Still weltered in the quagmire of their sin. If when I overhauled the monthly coffers, I found the business part a trifle thin. Choosing a model for the worst offender, I should unroll a still more lively lot of films depicting him in pomp and splendor. Swift glories, I should say, and doomed to rot and then turn on. The day of retribution, shades of avengers in the world below, prodding my man with verve and resolution, and broiling him on spits exceeding slow, and flaying him, and squeezing him with pincers, and whilst I pointed to his shriveled shape, these moving picture men are rare convinces, how I should thunder to the stalls agape. Look at yon sinner perishing in toto, take warning lest the same occurs to you, Each fraction of each wriggle is a photo, and therefore must be absolutely true. Evil. At the short 14th Vardon was bunkered, and took an hour. Exeter Express. He should have read our book. How to Get Out of a Bunker in Forty-Five Minutes. By one who often does. This move of the powers, sending a rural gentleman from the Rhine to do the big stick stunt in Albania with a lot of bloodthirsty savages is about as much use as putting a boy's sprout in the room of Sir John French. London Mail. Personally we put an elderly artichoke in Sir John's room when he comes to stay with us. This, of course, in addition to the usual tin of biscuits. John's. Essence of Parliament. Extracted from the Diary of Toby, MP. House of Commons, Monday, June 15th. In the mid-seventies, when dear Johnny Toole was at height of well-earned fame, he for a while played three several parts on the same night. Bold advertisement announced, Tool in three pieces, being just the kind of joke that has the widest run over the low level of mediocrity, it filled the gallery and upper boxes. Johnny Tool. Tonight it was recalled with fresh application. House privilege to see premiere in three pieces. For some weeks he has appeared at question time in dual character as prime minister and secretary of state for war. Tonight takes on duties of absent Chancellor of Duchy of Lancaster. His versatility as marvelous as his industry. In response to group of five questions addressed to him, as representing the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, bristles with minute information respecting number of livings and gift of the Duchy in West Riding of Yorkshire, together with amount of income of each benefice and nature of the security. Equally master of intricate case of the calamity overshadowing the Pontefract Cricket Club whose playing pitch has been damaged through subsidence caused by underground workings. Premier Chancellor of Duchy of Lancaster Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster I believe the Almighty has endowed us all with a certain amount of brains, but we don't all use them. Cheers. Mr. Tickler in the debate on the plural voting bill. Tickler Situation raised nice questions as to responsibility of the underground leaseholder and the prospect of compensation from coal royalties. Premier as fully informed on these subjects as later he proved himself when by way of supplementary question Amory, with pretty air of one really in search of elementary information, inquired. In whose hands is the government of Ireland at the present moment? In the hands of his majesty's ministers, said Asquith. Premier. Amory his majesties. Askwith. All very well for Duchy of Lancaster, its affairs and strong capable hands. But that does little to assuage grief of Worthington Evans. For months before the day when Masterman, greatly daring, exchanged safe position of Secretary of Treasury for dizzy heights of Duchy of Lancaster, Worthington Evans was daily accustomed to pose him with questions as to working of insurance act. In Masterman's enforced absence from House Wedgwood Ben placed in charge of Insurance Act Department, does a difficult business exceedingly well, has earned approval from both sides of House. But Worthington Evans is inconsolable. His feelings find expression in couple of lines, learned at his mother's knee, descriptive of anguish of blind boy parted from his brother by ruthless hand of death. Worthington Evans. Masterman. Worthington Evans. Masterman's. Wedgwood Ben. Worthington Evans. Oh, give my brother back to me. I cannot play alone. Visibly brightened up on eve of Ipswich election, which seemed to promise return of the wanderer. As tonight he sits forlorn in corner seat below gangway to left of speaker, gazing sadly at corner of treasury bench opposite, once amply filled by figure of former secretary of treasury, Stephen Gwynne, seated next to him. Gently nudges Butcher, and with softened memories of Peggotty contemplating Mrs. Gummidge in exceptionally low spirits, whispers. He's thinking of the old un. Speaker. Stephen Gwynn. Butcher. Business done. After brief unsparkling debate plural voters bill read a third time. Hostile amendment moved from front opposition bench negative by 320 votes against 242 bill passed final stage without division. Tuesday. Home rule fills the bill in both houses. The Lords, back from brief holiday, protest against delay in introducing amending bill. In vigorous speech Lansdowne insists on early day being named. Crewe, wringing his hands over unreasonable ways of some people, promises Tuesday next. Adds that, if upon consideration of proposed amendments noble lords should require longer interval before second reading of parent measure than is provided by original fixture for June 30th, there will be no objection to postponement. Lansdowne Crew In the Commons Robert Cecil, interposing an ordered business of supply, moves adjournment with view of calling attention to growing danger created in Ireland by existence of volunteer forces and failure of government to deal with situation it is plurality of situation that disturbs philosophical mind. As long as there was but one volunteer force, its locality confined to Ulster, its purpose to defeat Home Rule Bill, its commander-in-chief Carson, it was well. Nay more, it was patriotic. But when Ulster's challenge, uttered by 100,000 armed men, is answered by the south and west of Ireland with creation of an army exceeding that number, whole aspect is altered. Now, as in the time when, Measure for measure, was written, Robert Cecil, Carson, that in the captain's but a choleric word, which in the soldier is flat blasphemy. Opposition, to a man, stand up to support Lord Bob's demand that matter shall be discussed as one of urgent public importance. Lord Bob's. In course of animated speech Lord Bob delighted House by equaling, if not going one better than, the late Lord Cross's historic jeu d'esprit. Lord Bob. Crosses. I hear in Han, member smile. Said Grand Cross on a memorable occasion. Grand Cross. I wish, said Lord Bob tonight, sternly regarding hilarious ministerialists, those laughs could be photographed and shown throughout the country. Lord Bob. Suggestion will doubtless not be lost on enterprising purveyors of cinematograph shows. There was another opportunity for the snapshotter when, Lord Bob lamenting the ingrained frivolity of the radicals in this grave crisis. Arthur Markham interposed with supplementary question. Lord Bob. Arthur Markham. What about Satan rebuking sin? He asked. Turning upon Member for Mansfield more in sorrow than in anger, Lord Bob remarked. I don't know whether the Han Member regards me as a particularly frivolous person. General and generous cheering approved this implied disclaimer and Lord Bob returned to consideration of The characteristic vice of the radical government, fear of losing their places. Lord Bob. Lord Bob. Tendency to introduce personal observations cropped up from time to time through debate, which occupied greater part of sitting. Carson having genially alluded to main body of ministerialists as Lunatics. Neil Primrose, turning upon the wistful Winston, who hadn't been saying anything, denounced him as A human palimpsest. Carson. Neil Primrose. Wistful Winston. Perhaps most touching case was that of Biles of Bradford. Having long remained silent under undeserved contumely, he suddenly rose at half-past ten and irrelevantly remarked, I cannot understand how the myth has grown up in this house that I am a bloodthirsty ruffian. Why, Mr. Speaker, I would not kill a fly. Biles. Speaker. In view of proved inconvenience, not to say danger, of unrestrained plague of flies, this protestation was received with mixed feelings. Business done. On division, motion for adjournment of House negative by majority of sixty five. After this, the House, nothing if not logical, forthwith adjourned. Thursday. The Irish members, long quiescent, suddenly resumed former habit of activity. House owes to Amory the pleasing variation. He cited newspaper report of remarks recently made by Captain Bellingham, aide-de-camp to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Inspecting and addressing body of national volunteers, he exhorted them to ensure triumph of home rule. Amory. Bellingham. Lord Lieutenant of Ireland. Was this a proper thing to do? Certainly not. S.T. Augustine Birrell, answering Amory's question founded on incident stated that when Lord Aberdeen heard of matter he immediately called for explanation, and Captain Bellingham frankly acknowledged error of judgment. S. T. Augustine Birrell. Amory's. Aberdeen. Bellingham. Irish members recognized that in measure the error of judgment was slight compared with Amory's in stirring up this dangerously attractive pool. As everyone knows, and as House was promptly reminded, Colonel the Marquis of Londonderry and Colonel Lord Kilmory, aides-de-camp to his majesty, have on more than one occasion, when inspecting Ulster volunteers, urged them to stand indomitable in resistance to establishment of home rule in their northern province. Irish members want to know whether these noble and gallant gentlemen have been called upon to make explanation of their conduct similar to that peremptorily exacted from Captain Bellingham. Amory's. Londonderry. Kilmorey, His Majesty. Bellingham. Premier not to be drawn into delicate controversy. Pleaded lack of notice of questions put to him. Irish members will be delighted to provide it. Shall hear more on the subject next week. Premier. Business done. The infant Samuel, appearing in new calling as president of local government board, carries vote for his department by rattling majority of 127. Infant Samuel. Correspondence. To the editor of The Oblate Spheroid. Sir, I congratulate you on your new departure. The time is ripe for politics without partisanship. I look to you for scathing denunciations of the arch humbugs who now wear the mantle of the once great Liberal Party. Sir, yours, etc. Patriot, Patriot, Sir, I hail with joy your abandonment of party shibboleths, and await your exposure of Asquith, Lloyd George, and all such traitors. Sir, with Lloyd George, yours, etc. Impartial, impartial. Sir, you will find it hard to live up to your professions, but the thinking public will support you. Sir, we need a judicial paper that will set truth above party considerations, revealing, incidentally, the devilish character of the Redmond-cum-cabinet compact. Redmond, yours, etc. Dulce eti decorum. Dulce et decorum, pink chestnut dot. When ices are given at a dinner, it is usual to have them, but not otherwise. From etiquette in the lady, it is therefore incorrect, pink chestnut, to produce a private bomb vanilla from your handkerchief bag. The death of an infant from convulsions, without further explanation, can never be wholly satisfactory. Australian Medical Journal. It takes a lot to satisfy some people our booking office. All the world recognizes Sir Martin Conway as a paramount peak-compeller and explorer of resource, while superior persons, like this learned clerk, know him as an effective dilettante in the realms of art. In the sport of collecting, Fisher Onwin, with a general candor, but a specific canny, and of course rather tiresome and disappointing, reticence as to prices, he gives us, in effect, a treatise on the craft of curio-hunting, gaily illustrated by anecdotes of the bagging of bronze cats in Egypt, Foppa and Giorgiones in Italian byways, Inca jewelry in Peru, and heaven knows what and where beside. The authentic method, apparently, is to mark down your quarry as you enter the dealer's stockade, to pay no visible attention to it but bargain furiously over some pretentious treasure which you don't in the least want, later, admitting with regret your inability to afford the price to suggest that as a memento of your pleasant visit you might be disposed to carry off that odd trifle in the corner over there, then, bursting with hardly controlled excitement to see your priceless primitive, wrapped in brown paper and thrown into your cab, to drive to your quarters, hug yourself ecstatically and boast to your friends and fellow conspirators about it. Shooting the driven tiger from the howdah is quite evidently nothing to this royal sport of dealer spoofing, especially when the dealer knows a thing or two, as Sir Martin bravely confesses he sometimes does. I wonder if this arch collector, when he discovered his best piece, Allington Castle, of which he discourses with such pleasant and knowledgeable enthusiasm, turned a contemptuous back on the battlements and made a casual offer for the moat. A most diverting book. Martin Conway. Fisher Onwin. Martin. The name of Madame Iwapolowska is new to me. But if her previous books were anything like so good as A Child Went Forth, Duckworth, I am heartily sorry to have missed them. There have been many books written about childhood, and the end of them is not yet in sight. But I have known none that so successfully attains the simplicity that should belong to the subject. You probably identify the title as a quotation from Walt Whitman about the child that went forth every day. And the first object that he looked upon, that object he became, The child in the present instance was one Anna, who went forth in the Hungarian village where she was born, and saw and became a number of picturesque and amusing things, all of which her narrator has quite obviously herself recalled, and sat down in excellent fashion. I don't want you to run away with the idea that Anna was a good, or even a pleasant child. Anything but that. The things she did and said furnished a more than sufficient reason for her father to threaten again and again to send her to school in England. The book ends with the realization of this, which had always been to Anna as a kind of shadowy horror in the background of life. We are not told which particular English school was favored with her patronage, nor how she got on there. I was too interested in her career not to be sorry for this omission, and that shall be my personal tribute to her attractions. Madame Iwapoloska. Duckworth. Walt Whitman. There are few persons who can write love stories with a surer and more tender touch than Catherine Tynan. So I expect that many gentle souls will share my pleasure in the fact that she has just put together a volume of studies in this kind under the amiable title of Lovers' Meetings, Werner Lorry. Personally, my only complaint about them is that in a short story, lovers' meetings mean the journey's end. And I wished to spend a longer time in the society of many of the agreeable characters of Mrs. Hinkston's studies. Take, for example, the first, and my own favorite, of the series. There really isn't anything special in it, and yet there is everything. What happened was that Challoner, a confirmed bachelor, went to the Dublin Quay to see off a friend on the boat to Holyhead. The friend didn't turn up, but a young governess, with whom Challoner had only the slightest previous acquaintance, was going by the boat, so Challoner went with her, and they were married, and lived happy ever after. You may think that this doesn't sound very probable, and perhaps it doesn't, but it is so charmingly told, Challoner's growing delight in the initial mistake that confuses the pair as man and wife is so alluringly developed, and the whole little episode of twenty pages has such a way with it as to take your credulity a willing captive. This was my individual choice but there are fifteen others of various styles, some mild detective studies, and a pathetic little ghost story that recalls to me one of Kipling's best. Altogether an attractive collection, very far above many such that have appeared lately. Catherine Tynan, Werner Lurie, Hinkson's, Kipling's, Mr. Wilkinson Sharon, in his new novel, The Marriage Tie, Grant Richards, is very serious about the hypocrisies of the virtuous and the injustice of our moral conventions. Other writers before him have been serious about these things, and I do not know that Mr. Sharon has anything very new to say. I must also confess to thinking that a sense of humor would have assisted him greatly in his task. Nevertheless his readers are certain to sympathize with his beautiful heroine in her dismay at her unfortunate illegitimacy and she is a good girl with a great regard for the feelings of all her friends, even though she expresses this regard a little stiffly. Mr. Sharon uses his background well, and many of his scenes would be effective if only his characters were debarred from dialogue. It would be, I am sure, beyond Johanna's powers, were she limited to the deaf and dumb alphabet, to convey such a speech as this. I wish you to consent to your father's suggestions, dear. By doing so you do not injure me and you cheer his declining days. I am sure your dear mother wishes it. Her methods would become something much brusker and more direct. I doubt if Mr. Sharon is at his best in a novel. An essay on the confused issues of illegitimacy and the punishment of the children for the sins of their fathers would show him, I am convinced, at his ease. But dialogue and a beautiful heroine are an embarrassment to him. Wilkinson Sharon. Grand Richards. Sharon. 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 In a volume of tales and sketches entitled The Mercy of the Lord, Heinemann Mrs. Flora Annie Steele revives pleasant memories of her Indian romances once beloved by me. In these new stories, everybody dies, if Europeans, with the latest slang upon their lips, if natives, with a lusty invocation to Allah. Mrs. Steele does not believe in letting the reader know what she is about, and there is generally something up her sleeve. Each story has its own little puzzle, and if the puzzles are not always solved by the end of the tale, one can make all kinds of pleasant conjectures as to what really did happen, and Missus Steele's mysterious hints and shrugs and fingers on the lip do beyond question assist her atmosphere. I like best of the stories. Salt of the Earth. A most moving tale, beautifully told. Always misses. Steel is interesting and I hope these sketches are only little preludes to another of her thrilling romances. Heinemann. Flora Annie Steele. Steele. Steels. Steele. If Mr. Bertram Smith's caravan days, Nisbet, has not made me eager to take to the road at once, the reason is that he seems to delight in things that I most cordially detest. For instance, he likes cooking and he is very fond of rain with such tastes he has more facilities for enjoying himself than are offered to most of us and i find myself wondering whether life in a caravan always supposing that he was not there to do the cooking and admire the rain would be quite as much fun as he would have us believe i am confident that when next he goes upon his travels the majority of his friends will be anxious to share the attractions of his siglinda that caravan of caravans but i doubt if they will be ordering siglindas for themselves meanwhile So human has Mr. Bertram Smith made his Seaglinda that I can well imagine her sulking in her retirement because she wants to see Argyle, the only county in Scotland she has not yet sampled. Bertram Smith's Nisbet Bertram Smith If you are a musical genius yourself and want to do a young composer a good turn, I implore you not to get his opera produced under the pretense that it is yours and wait until it has been received enthusiastically before you announce whose work it is. For that is what Jess Levelier did, and Miss Louise Mack tells us what a deal of trouble was brought about by this impulsive action. There are several love stories in the music makers, Mills and Boone. There is the affair of Jess, and there is the affair of Jess's father, and in regard to the second of these I would say that I am a little tired of adventurous women who are first attracted by dollars and then find that they are head over ears in love with the man himself. But in case you are not adequately intrigued by either of these romances, I can also tell you that Sir William, Big and Burley, and Trixie Harrison, though married, gave considerable cause for anxiety before. With Outstretched hands she went tottering towards him. Even the most jaded novel readers will suffer thrills and surprises from the music makers, and occasionally, perhaps, they will wonder whether Coincidence's long arm has not been stretched to the point of dislocation. However that may be, The book is breezy, and its author is lavish of her material. Parsimonious writers would have made half a dozen novels out of the stuff of Mrs. Creed's book. Louise Mack. Mills and Boone. Creed's. More munitions of peace. Several further months had elapsed in the history of the scheme for the better government of Ireland. The Home Rule Bill had been read for the third time in the inferior chamber. But, apart from this conciliatory action— no effective attempt had been made to avert the horrors of civil war. Meanwhile two coups had been planned, of which the one failed and the other succeeded. And during the arrangements for the first coup, for it got no further than the preparatory stage, and even this was denied, it was revealed that British officers were not very greatly inclined to shoot down their fellow countrymen for the sake of the beaux of a political party, and for this the politicians of that party. SELECTING THE WORST NAME THEY COULD THINK OF, DESCRIBED THESE OFFICERS AS POLITICIANS. AND THE CRY OF, THE ARMY V, THE PEOPLE, STARTED BY A LABOR MEMBER, WHO WORE A LARGE HAT, AND SUPPORTED BY THE FIRST LORD OF THE ADMIRALTY, WHO WORE A SMALL ONE, WAS RAISED VERY HIGH AND THEN DROPPED, AS LIKELY TO PROVE INEXPEDIENT, FIRST LORD OF THE ADMIRALTY. BUT THE OTHER COUP, WHICH SUCCEEDED, was a very clever feat of gun-running on the part of the Ulster Volunteers. And the law having been broken, the government, as its guardian, determined to take no punitive measures, an attitude that was repellent both to Sir William Biles and to Mr. Neil Primrose. William Biles. Neil Primrose. And now there grew up in each political party a body of rebellion. For on the liberal side there were those— notorious at other seasons for their advocacy of peace at whatever charges, who gave out that there were worse things than civil war, and one of the worst things was the stultification of their own projects, or, as they put it, of the will of the people. Though they showed no strong anxiety to discover, by the usual tests, what the will of the people might actually be in the matter. And on the Unionist side there were those who said that they would do nothing to provoke civil war, but that, since it took two sides to conduct a civil or any other kind of war, and the British army was apparently not available, there was no fear of civil war, and they, the Unionist party, could well afford to stiffen themselves about the lips. And all this tended to embarrass the labors, if any, of those leaders who were still supposed to be holding communion together for the furtherance of a compromise. Now, among the Ulster volunteers— Though perfect sobriety was exhorted and maintained, it was excusably felt that it would be a pity if so fine a force should have been raised and armed at such expense and sacrifice, and then have no chance of showing what it could do. And this feeling evoked sympathy in the breasts of the Irish of the south and west, and they said to them of Ulster Rather than see your army wasted, we will ourselves raise one for you to shoot at. And this they did, in part for sheer joy of the chance of a fight and in part for admiration of the sportsmanship of a people that had defied a British government. And though some joined the new volunteers for love of home rule, and with the object of offering themselves as substitutes for the British army, yet the promoters were content to allege, vaguely and inoffensively, that their object was just the protection of Irish liberty, whatever that might be taken to mean. And being Irish, no exact logic was asked of them. But at first Mr. Redmond— as a supporter of the law, and scandalized by its breach in Ulster, declined to approve this illegal development, which for the rest he regarded as negligible. But later, when it had grown too large to be ignored, he generously consented to overlook its illegality, and to place it under official patronage. But his offer was received in a spirit of very regrettable independence. On reflection, however, this attitude was exchanged for one of sullen submission. Redmond. Now a private army is a dangerous thing when you know what it is for, but it is a very dangerous thing when you don't. And there were cynics, not too frivolous, who held that the best course for the government would be to withdraw from Ireland for the time being and leave Ulster, and the rest to come to an agreement of their own, either with or without a bloody prelude. And there were other critics, not much more frivolous, who replied that, if we walked out of Ireland and left Ulster and the rest to come to terms, They might get to understand one another to such good purpose that we should never have the opportunity of walking in again. And the government's only consolation lay in the thought that the rest of Ireland lacked the munitions of war owing to the vigilant precautions taken to prevent the importation of arms into Ulster. A thrill of emotion rippled over the tented plain. Into the camp of the Nationalist volunteers had dashed a motorcar which was taken to be the forerunner of a great consignment of smuggled arms for it contained a bulky wooden case with the label. Munitions of Peace, pasted upon its façade, a superscription that might well have been designed to mislead the wariest of coastguards and patrols. Its sole convoy was an old gentleman, evidently selected for the part, for by his air of simple benevolence you would have judged him the last man in the world to be suspected of nefarious practices. A cry of bitter disappointment broke out on the discovery that the munitions— consisted of nothing but books. But the uproar died down as the old gentleman was seen to assume the attitude of an orator. His words were at first received in courteous silence, then with sympathetic approval, finally with deafening applause. Nationalist volunteers,' he said. "'I come from performing a similar mission of camaraderie among the hosts of Ulster. I am no partisan.' I am like a certain philanthropist of whom I have heard who pervade sherbet to the rival camps of the Sultan of Morocco and the Pretender. I trust that my fate may not be his, for he was the sole person killed in one of the noisiest battles ever fought in the environs of Fez, Morocco. This tome, identical with the rest of my munitions of peace, embodies, for I made the contents myself, and so ought to know, the highest wisdom mingled with the purest material from earth. Its contemporaneous perusal in both camps should encourage a common ideal of humor, and so promote mutual respect and affection. I would go even further and express the hope that here may be found a spirit of genial tolerance which, if assimilated by all parties, will infallibly lead to a solution of the Irish question without the inconvenience of bloodshed. Gentlemen, permit me, and thereupon he presented to the admiring gaze of his audience Mr. Punches. Cartoons Partridge, Bernard. After ten years, 311. Amending Bill, the, 411. Asquith to the rescue, and, 271. Color d'Orange, 51. Crescendo, 371. Desperate Remedies, 151. Devotee of, The Doctrine, a, 171. Diversion, a, 331. Dove of Peace, the 491. From Fife to Harp, 291. Gift Horse, the 111. Holiday Task, a 431. Latest Velasquez, the 211. Missing Word, the 131. Neptune's Ally, 231. New Bellerophon, the 91. New Shylock, the 391. Price of Admiralty, the 71. Sincerest Flattery, the 451. There's Many a Slip, 251. Triumph of the Voluntary System, 471. Ulster King at Arms, the 351. Wooing, the 191. Ravenhill, L. After Closing Hours, 243. Black Man's Burden, the 43. Captains Courageous, 483. Circus of Empire, the 423. Clean Slate, a 103. Coalition Touch, the 403. Concert of South America, the 383. Easter Egg, and 263. Exit Tango, 83. Fight for the Banner, the 283. Giants Refreshed. 443. Gift for Gift, 183. Lightning the Darkness, 223. Nine Old Men of the Sea, the 163. One of Us, now 123. Penny Wisdom, 203. Penultimatum, A 303. Refreshing the Fruit, 463. Sand Campaign, the 31. Sitting Tight, 343. Sword of War, A. 323. Splendid Paupers, the 11. Swashbucklers, the 363. Throne Perilous, the 143. Trust Clinch, the 63. Townsend, F. H. Earthly Paradise, the 3. Sea Change, A. 23. Articles, Amineer Stacy. Moon, the 246. Billsborough, J. H. Mr. Punch's Pantomime Analysis, 122. Bird, A. W. Given Away, 46. Manners for Parents, 162. Birrell, S. C. E. Taminki Poo, 158. Toast, Stay, 441. Brex, J. 12s. Kitakubism A, 106. Chalmers, P, R. Adventurers, 478. Annabelle Lee, 290. Below the Wire, 390. Big Trout, The, 487. Buddha, 100. Khan, 277. Fox, The, 196. Huntsman's Story, The, 16. In March, 216, Johnny Rig, 354, Old China, 258, Pandine, 336, Song, 221, Taddy Bogle, the 425, Septimus on Trout, 138, Tortoiseshell Cat, the 178, Trophy, the 106. Uncle Steve's Ferry, sixty-eight; West Highland, three hundred and sixty-eight; Claughton, Harold, Lost Leader, a one hundred and eighty; Cochrane Alfred, Rock Gardness in London, the four hundred and seventy-five; Collins G H, Best Policy, the two hundred and twenty-two; Pessimism, seventy-seven; Second Hand Serenade, a four hundred and eighty-eight. Dark Richard. Two Eyes of Grey. 455. Davis. Oswald H. How to Get an Offhand. 262. Duffin. Ruth. Advance Finale. An. 453. Eckersley Arthur. Reversible Rhetoric. 275. Silver Jubilee. A. 366. Three-card trick. The. 426. Three Wishes, The, 113. Winter Sports, 27. Eden. Idol of the Marketplace, and, 218. Sir Batters, 489. Edwards, C. Continental Intelligence, 15. Elias, F. Food, Not Merely for Thought, 227. Very Much Greater London, 417. Emmanuel, Walter. Sheravaria Weekly. What Our Readers Think of Us, 13. Fargin, Herbert. Question of Courtesy, A, 338. Fish, W, W, Blair. Bargain in Fashions, A, 347. Carpet Sales, 255. Charm, A, 90. Spell, The, 13. Suite of the Year, The, 407. Villain in Revolt, A, 296. Fisher Murray. Hello, Bedroom Scene, 436. Fowler F. G. On 340. Once One, 237. Fowler P. A. Laid, 278. Love at the Cinema, 58. Freeman William. Gwendolyn's Hobbies, 309. French C. O. Our Literary Advice Department, 168. Fry C. H. Commercial Side, the 82. Garvey. Ina. At the Gates of the West, 236. Blanche's Letters, 94, 346, 446. Guess who it is, 122. Sitter Sat Upon, the 309. Gittins H. N. LOVES LABOR 115 MARRIED MAN'S ADVANTAGE THE 34 SPORTING CHANCE A 357 WELCOME FLAW A 456 GRAVES C L BALLAD OF THE WATCHFUL EYE 270 DRASTIC REFORM OF SCHOOLS 409 Gnomes FOR GOLFERS 170 IN THE GARDEN OF ALLAH 34 Liberals Day by Day, 267, Qualities That Count, the 97, Tragedy of Middle Age, the 55, Graves C. L. and Lucas E. V. April for the Epicure, 286, Artiste Aliases, 249, Author, the 338, Book Buyer, the 266, Cautious Conclusions, 302. Colonel Talks, the 405. Country Life Exhibition, 258. Dash 206. Eavesdropper, the 349. Fairs, 177. Gleanings from Grub Street, 367. Grub Street Gossip, 307. How to Improve London, 369. Indomables, the 68. In Extremis, 116. Laconics, 48. Letters and Life, 129. Lidbetter, 85. Mr. Balfour, Mixed Double Life, 218. Mr. Roosevelt's Discoveries, 362. Music and Millinery, 65. Musical Notes, 335, 484. National Calamity, A. 394. New Book of Beauty, A. 6. Newspaper War, 422. Nose Has It, The, 114. Novelist and Millionaire, 345. Oblique Method, The, 95. One of Our Greatest, 406. One Way With Them, 196. Our Ready Writers, 109. Popular Misconceptions, 226. Professor Splurgeon on Personality, 336. Record Risks, 17. Romance of a Battleship, A5. Secret Out, the 28. Studies in Discipleship, 185. Suffer, the 386. Tempora Mutanter, 478. Too Good to be True, 128. Water is best, 350. Water on the Brain, 216. When Boss Eats Boss, 127. Young Everything, the 467. Hardy Frank. Mouse of Mydra, the 434. Haslam, Ralph. Critic at the RA, the 312. Hastings, B. McDonald. How the Championship Was Won, 482. Herbert A. P. Call of the Blood, the 470. Hodgkinson T. Cry for Guidance, a 120. Danger Signal, the 157. Hospitable Door, the 98. Last Straw, the 8. News from the Front, 327. Next of the Dandies, the 241. Noblest Work of Man, The 365. Piercing of the Veil, the 385. Sign of Decay, a 174. Time Exposure, a 461. Hopkins E. T. Moan of the Old Horses, the 73. Young Mother Swan Song, 21. Hoskin J. F. An Apology That Made Things Worse, 148. Curling, 48. Interviewing Father, one hundred and sixty-six. Miranda's will, seventy-six. Hughes C. E. Great occasion, a four hundred and thirty-eight. Jenkins Ernest, Bloodyard, four hundred and six. Kakakakokwans the forty-seven. Little wonder the sixteen. New Penny Paper the two hundred and five. Strike of school teachers the one hundred and twenty-one. Johnston Alec. Argumentum ad Feminam, 276. Coward, the 37. Local Color, 89. Milestones, 376. Old Master, the 74. Slit Trouser, the 206. Stanzas Written in Dejection Before Matrimony, 230. Subscription, the 10. Kendall. Floral Dangers, 374. Hen, the 130. House of Punch, the 46. Shop, 256. Wild Swan, the 210. Kid Arthur. Earthly Hades, the 458. Myth of Bond Street, A, 298. Kirk Lawrence. Billiards a la Golf, 69. For Professional Services, 117. Knox E. G. V. Amending a Bill, 466. Chimes in the Chub, the 227. Cinnies of the Times, 125. Civil War, 329. Forgiveness, 190. Hazard on the Home Green, A, 442. Highway Loot, 388. Inspiration, 410. Ivory, 87. Loop, Loop 38. Manizala Mode, 110. Manly Part, the 265. Moving, 167. Nocturne, 287. Olympic Talent, 67. Perfection, 370. Punch, in his element, 250. Revelation Revised, 490. Revenge, 50. Smile of the Sea Kings, the 430. Sporting Offer, a 450. Langley, F. O. Audit, the 402. Billet Due, 388. Bygone, a 58. Character, a 158. Epidemic, the 78. Impressing of Perkins, the 328. Modern Idol, a 93. Nonentity A, 285. Old Friends, 30. Opportunist, the, 198. Root of All Evil, the, 457. Spectrum, the, 235. Laws A, Gordon. What to Tell an Editor, 25. Layman R, C. Abandoner, the, 458. Bad Dream, A, 38. Beer Fight, the 77. Exile, 278. Federal Solution, the 298. Great Resigner, the 142. Hat, the 202. Jobsons, 222. Last Straw, the 57. Lean to Shed, the 116. Legal Document, A, 488. May Picnic A. 418. Mediation. 398. Not a Line. 435. Odd Man. The 255. Paper Chase. The 14. Per Zad Astra. 325. Peter. A Pekingese Puppy. 347. Post Office Savings Bank. The 318. Roosevelt Resurgit. 465. Singing Water, 147. Smiles and Laughter, 187. Sultan of Morocco, the 378. Trying On, 96. Wedding Present, the 176. Longstaff, Gilbert. Times Revenge, 238. Lucas E., the Another Information Bureau, 436. 456. In the Brave 3D. Days 225. Once Upon a Time, 55, 314. Lucy Henry. Essence of Parliament, 133, 153, 173, 193, 213, 233, 253, 273, 293, 313, 333, 353, 373, 393. 413, 433, 473. McClellan W. E. Yellow furs, the 86. Merillilier. Points of view, 238. To my husband's banker, 362. Marshall, Archibald. Cabinet Crisis, A. 54. Martin N. R. Cabinet Meets, The 102. End of It All, The 182. New Journal Insurance, The 23. Politics on the Links, 302. Red Head and White Paws, 474. Royalists, The 146. Scene, in 1916, A. 322. Signers of the Times, two hundred and seventeen. Matkin, C. Way out, the four hundred and thirty-eight. Melvin, H. E. Lord of the Leviathans, the three hundred and seventy-eight. Milne, A. A. At the play, one hundred and ninety-five. Three hundred and seventy-five. Competition spirit, the three hundred and forty-eight. Complete dramatist, the four twenty-eight. Four hundred and forty-eight. 462 Driven for 86 Farewell Tour A42 Grumpy 396 Hanging Garden in Babylon A408 Lesson the 108 My Lord's Dinner 326 Obvious the 308 Oranges and Lemons 188 208 228 248 208 268, 288. Play of Features A. 2. Same old story, the 26. Silver Linings, 66. Strong Man, the 88. Wrongly Attributed, 368. Muir Ward. London's Links with the Past, 237. Naismith, J. B. Every Author's Wife, 148. In Search of Peter, 289. Phillips C.K. Post Office Again, the 53. Telephone Again, the 175. To Obey or Not to Obey, 36. Pope. Jesse. Bomb, the 282. Downward Trend, the 194. Militant Song, the 168. Vagrant, A. 385. Randall, Wilfred L. Art of Conversation, the 296. Cancan, the 454. Perfect Conductor, the 162. Reddington. Legend of Every Matron, the 95. Rigby, Reginald. Language of Color, the 390. Security, 98. Risk RK. Cal, The 294, Brittenberg Max, Cinema Habit, The 215, Salter, Gurney, Parent Antinos. 302, Salvage Stanley, Man of the Evening, The 468, Seaman Owen, At the Play, 18, 56, 74, 135, 156, 178, 276, 316, 356, 376, 416, 476. Bowls Without a Bias, 102. Biles for the Bill, 182. Civil War Estimates, 142. Cocaine of Dreams, A, 62. General Villa Breaks into Poetry, 322. Grand Knights for 82. Holiday Mood, the 422. In Memoriam, Sir John Tenniel, 162. Prancing Prussian, A, 22. Smithers B, C, 82. Spirit of Ulster and the Army, the 242. To Mr. Chamberlain, 40. To the Cabinet, 280. Ulster for Scotland, 442. Unhappy Mean, the 362. Union of Irish Hearts, the 282. Who Fears to Speak of? 196, 382. Smith Bertram. Bazaar Cushion, the 126. Corncrake, the 418. Game License, the 28. Vandalism, 387. Smith C. Turley. Fuser, the 354. Triumph of Thinness, A, 234. Smith, E, B. Business Friendship, 382. Stern, Ashley. Buying a Piano, 414. Sykes, A, A. Deadly Button, the 155. Intellectual Damage to Animals, 138. Pigeon Trot, the 70. Tombs, J.S.M. In the Park, 466. Isabel in Springtime, 327. Proof, 275. Seasons Delights, the 334. White R. F. amand Deshonorable, 1. Bell's Letra and Others, 169. Canal, the 154. Commercial Art, 297. Converted Statistician, the 78. Epic from the Provinces, an 358. Ideal Film Plot, the 149. Ring, the 197. Wilson A., J.A. Serenity, 480. Wodehouse P., G. Egbert, Bullfrog, 242. Misunderstood, 6. Sluggard, the 306. Wyndham Brown W. F. Political Correspondence A. 256. Pictures and Sketches. Armor G. D. Bomber Lewis. Baines Philip. Belcher George. Bird W. Brightwell L. R. Brooke Ricardo. Cheney Leo. Cobb. Ruth. Cows Dudley S. Dixon G. S. Dowd J. H. Fenning Wilson. Fraser P. Gill Arthur. Grave Charles. Harris H. H. Harrison Charles. Hart Frank. Haselden W. K. Henry Thomas. Hinkling P. B. Jenis G. Lloyd A. W. Lunt Wilmot. Maybank Thomas. Mills A. Wallace. Mobs Headley, A. Morrow E. A. Morrow George. Norris A. Partridge Bernard. Pears Charles. Pegram Fred. Prance Bertram. Ravenhill L. Reynolds Frank. Rose D. T. Roundtree Harry. Shepard F. H. Shepperson C. A. Simmons Graham. Smith A. T. Stampa GL, Strange C. S., Terry S., Thomas Burt, Thorpe J. H., Townsend F. H., Woodstar, Young D. A.